Dawn was breaking. Throughout the night, police had surrounded the Glen Rowan Inn, where the notorious outlaw, Ned Kelly, and his men had barricaded themselves. At around 5 a.m., they'd shot and reportedly killed Joe Byrne, Kelly's right-hand man, but no further stirring had taken place. In fact, all was quiet, a bit too quiet for the authorities' liking, yet they knew that letting their guard down would likely be a dangerous and costly mistake, so they held their guns aloft, just in the event of a shootout. The bush was shrouded in mist, giving the surroundings a mysterious, otherworldly air. Ever since anyone could remember, strange stories had been circulating about this particular land. The earliest settlers in the area had spoken of ghosts and other malignant spirits that trudged through the woods at night to cause mischief and mayhem of every sort. Even the aboriginals claimed it to be the home of the Bunyip, a terrifying water demon with an appetite for human flesh. Everyone was on edge, and needless to say, these stories did nothing to quell their fears. Just then, the sound of snapping twigs behind them caused the police to turn their attention away from the inn. There, emerging from the mist like a ghostly apparition, was a man. At least it appeared to be a man. He was dressed in a coat, trousers, and boots, yet his body and face were obscured by thick sheets of metal, like armor, and a helmet, respectively, which would ensure his protection against any stray bullets. Journalist Tom Carrington, who was present at the scene, would later recall... With the steam rising from the ground, it looked for all the world like the ghost of Hamlet's father with no head, only a very long, thick neck. It was the most extraordinary sight I ever saw or read of in my life, and I felt fairly spellbound with wonder, and I could not stir or speak. The alien figure, too, held his pistol aloft and began firing at the policemen nearest him. One by one, they fell. Those still standing watched in horror as their bullets ricocheted off the creature's metallic skin. It pressed on, impervious to their barrage, as Kelly's men began their own assault on the authorities from within the inn. But in the chaos, the monster was struck in the leg, the one part of his body unprotected, much like Achilles' infamous heel, and he fell with a crash. At last, the notorious Ned Kelly was defeated, and he was taken into custody for his crimes. So ends the story of the subject of today's episode. Four and a half months later, after a trial in which he was found guilty of murder on two counts, he was sentenced to death by hanging. He was just 25 years old, still quite young, but in the brief span of his life had gained a considerable amount of notoriety and made a name for himself, one that still haunts Australians from all walks of life to this very day. Just who was this scrappy young lad from the backwaters of southeastern Australia? What did he accomplish in his short life? And perhaps the most important question of all, was he a hero? or a villain. I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome back to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. And today we're going to the land down under to meet the man who is arguably the most infamous figure in that country's history, Ned Kelly. The land we know today as Australia has been inhabited for some 60,000 years. The first inhabitants, of course, were the people to whom we now refer as the Aboriginals, who made their way down into the continent when it was still connected to Southeast Asia via land bridge during the last Ice Age. For millennia, eons, their unique culture thrived, as they were virtually cut off from the rest of the world when the vast ice sheets finally melted around 8,000 BC. In all that time, they'd only maintained trade with nearby islanders. But unbeknownst to the Aborigines, everything would change in 1606, when a Dutch explorer named Willem Janssen made landfall on the western side of what's now Cape York Peninsula, and ended up charting some 186 miles, 300 kilometers of coastline, along the northeastern edge of the continent. Janssen named the mysterious land he discovered after a mythic southern continent that had been hypothesized since antiquity, Terra Australis, from the Latin meaning southern land. It wasn't until almost two centuries later, however, that the English explorer Matthew Flinders, upon circumnavigating the continent in 1803, first posited the name we use today. 
While the Dutch had quote-unquote discovered Australia, they surprisingly never colonized or laid claim to it as their own. Though Terra Australis was ultimately renamed New Holland by Janssen himself, it remained in the hands of its ancestral owners, that is, the Aborigines, for an additional 150 years. It wasn't until 1770, when famed British explorer Captain Cook, who's perhaps best known for his exploits throughout Polynesia, landed in eastern Australia and claimed it for Britain that the continent began being consolidated into a European colonial possession. With the joining of Western Australia in 1828, it became the largest holding within the British imperial system. Though the country's history was shaped by many forces and elements, it was, and to an extent still is, perhaps best known for its reputation as a penal colony, which was established in 1786. At the time, British prisons held many petty criminals, and the truth of the matter was that it was becoming virtually impossible to house them all in these overcrowded jails. So it was that, in October of that same year, the British government appointed Admiral Arthur Phillip to pilot the first ship of prisoners, known as the Sirius, on a voyage to Australia to establish an agricultural work camp in the territory of New South Wales, in which he would also serve as the colony's first governor. Over the next 82 years, several more penal colonies would be established throughout Australia, and the island continent would see over 10,000 convicts from throughout the British Empire toil in its fields. Ned Kelly's father, John, was one of them. Born in 1820 in Clonbrogan, County Tipperary, Ireland, then part of Britain, John Red Kelly was convicted at the age of 21 of the theft of two pigs from a neighbor's farm. He was sentenced to six years hard labor at Hobart Town in what was then known as Van Diemen's Land, now the state of Tasmania in Australia. Upon finishing his sentence in January of 1848, he moved to the mainland, specifically the state of Victoria in the southeastern part of the country, where he landed employment as a carpenter on a farm belonging to one John Quinn in the town of Wallen Wallen. It was there that the young Red found love in the form of Quinn's 18-year-old daughter, Ellen. The two were married on November 18, 1850, at St. Francis Catholic Church in Melbourne, and turned to gold digging during the Victorian gold rush a year later. They earned enough to purchase a small tract of land in the town of Beveridge, just north of the city. They had two children before Edward Ned Kelly was born on December 28, 1854. The environment in which young Ned grew up was both untamed and unrelenting. Despite the fact that his parents had made some money during the Victorian gold rush, it soon ran out, and the family lived in abject poverty, so much so that they sometimes had to rely on theft to obtain necessary provisions. Prophetically, Ned's first court appearance was at the tender age of eight, though he himself wasn't the accused. His uncle, Jim, was convicted of stealing cattle from a nearby ranch, and he was called to testify in Jim's favor. So dire was the Kelly's financial situation that Ned's father began drinking heavily. It was clear that Beveridge wasn't the promised land for which the family had hoped, and in 1864 they packed their bags and headed even further north to the small town of Avenel, about 65 miles, 104 kilometers away from Melbourne. It was here that the young Ned would receive a basic education while simultaneously familiarizing himself with his wild surroundings. A key event in the boy's life took place here as well, when at the age of 11 he rescued another boy from drowning in a nearby creek. The boy's family were so grateful that they gave Ned a green sash, a token he'd be wearing on that fateful shootout with police years later. But for every positive, a negative seemed to be looming on the horizon for the Kelly family. In 1865, Ned's father, Red, was sentenced to pay a 25-pound sterling fine in relation to the theft of a calf from a nearby ranch. As the family couldn't fork over the money, the alternative was six months in prison, though there aren't surviving records of his serving any time for his offense. Regardless, the following year, he died from alcohol-related causes, leaving Ellen to fend for her eight children herself. To make matters worse, Ned's uncle Jim was convicted of arson of private property, and while initially sentenced to death, was instead given 15 years of hard labor. With no breadwinner, Ellen had to think of a way to supplement the family income. 
Thus they relocated to Eleven Mile Creek near the town of Greta in northern Victoria, where they took up a small farm of some 88 acres, 360,000 square meters. As the land was barren and therefore not conducive for cultivation, Allen instead offered accommodations for people traveling through the region, as well as illegally selling alcohol to supplement her income. The loss of both his father and uncle within a couple years of each other must have been quite devastating for young Ned, as we shall see in the next formative stage of his life. With a lack of father figures around, the teenager, now 14, grew quite attached to one Harry Power, born name Henry Johnson, in 1869, an Irish-born transported convict, much like Ned's father, who became a bushranger after escaping from Pentridge Prison in Melbourne, unlike Ned's father. As the Kelly family were of Irish heritage, and as such consisted of the more oppressed subjects of the British Empire, they sympathized with Power, who had gained a significant amount of notoriety for his run-ins with local British authority. By May of that same year, Ned had become a protege of sorts, a bushranger in training, whom Power had taken under his proverbial wing, and it wasn't long before the pair started raising hell in the wilds of Victoria State. Though their first attempt at the theft of some horses ultimately failed, with Ned backing out of his arrangement with Power, the two would ultimately reconcile the following year in March of 1870, embarking on a month-long crime spree that would put the like of Jesse James or Billy the Kid half a world away to shame. As their number of armed robberies increased, local police were scrambling to solve the mystery of Power's young accomplice, which they soon did, arresting Ned and putting him before the jury on three separate charges of theft. Luckily for him, however, he was released a month later due to lack of evidence, as well as the victims being unable to clearly identify him as the culprit. Following this fiasco, the lad severed ties with Power, and in June that same year, the bushranger was captured by the authorities. Though Power swore to his dying day that his former protege had been the one to rat him out, it's believed that Ned's own uncle, Jack, had been responsible, earning £500 sterling for his information on the outlaw's whereabouts. Such was Ned's first run-in with the law, but, as we know, it certainly wouldn't be his last, a fact of which the Benalla Ensign, a local newspaper, prophetically took note in an article following Power's arrest. The effect of Power's example has already been to draw one young fellow into the open vortex of crime, and unless his career speedily cut short, young Kelly will blossom into a declared enemy of society. Well, that's all for this week. If you want to know what happens next in Ned Kelly's epic saga, then be sure to tune in next Thursday for the continuation. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support me for more like them, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there, you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit your budget and monetary situation. Listening and sharing also help me in big ways, so please do so on all streaming platforms. Remember to join me again next week for the next part of The Ballad of Ned Kelly, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time. Thank you.